SBS often continues after nine. And this is the only place you'll hear it. Jamie and Lee on Listener. Anytime you want them. Now, one of the great things we get to do is sit down and chat with some very interesting people from around our region. And a group of them sat up on, jumped up on stage for TEDx Wagga a couple of weeks ago. One of those was Associate Professor Sarah Burden, who spoke about challenging our disordered thinking about neurodiversity. And you can catch that uh, if you search for the TEDx speech online. Uh, Sarah joins us today to have a bit of a yarn about it. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you for coming in. Um, firstly, well, I'm just going to ask you really generally, can you talk to us about what neurodiversity is? It's a term that we hear so much and probably more in the last three years than we have previously. Can you talk to us about what neurodiversity means? Absolutely. Um, So the reason that you hear the term neurodiversity more is that it's kind of a more modern movement. And what it is, is it's um, a strengths-based view of conditions such as autism and ADHD. So conditions that are a different wiring of the brain. But we never really used the term neurodiversity in the past because we had such I guess, negative medical connotations for these conditions. But now we are moving into a space where we're realising that actually there's a whole lot that we didn't know about these conditions before. It was never really mentioned in the new, in the research. But now that we have, you know, things such as social media and people who are neurodiverse themselves are coming out and saying, this is what my life looks like. Other people are saying, oh my gosh, that's what my life looks like too. And so we're building this um, understanding of the community that was never there before. So neurodiversity is kind of a new term that's being coined to really see that in a positive light rather than kind of that medical negative light that it was previously seen in. How did you get into this field of study? Well, Interestingly, it's kind of an intersection between both my personal and my private life. So I'm a speech pathologist by background. My first job, I moved to Melbourne um, and worked at an autistic school and a clinic that specifically worked with autistic kids. And that was in 2010, so 13 years ago. The way that we conceptualise and understand autism between when I was trained and now has just changed exponentially. So a lot of the things that we thought to be true about autism back then I guess we're just very limiting about the capacity that these children had to participate in the world and, you know, what was actually going on in their brains and why they behaved in the way that they did. Um, And it just made me very curious. And then I guess also um, having children who are neurodiverse really then sort of puts you onto that trajectory of thinking, okay, I want to know absolutely everything about these conditions so that I can support my kids in the very best way. And then later in life, realising that I was neurodiverse myself, um, it just kind of all started to fall into place that this is really where my focus should be because I have the professional skills as well as the personal lived experience to kind of back it up. Yeah, amazing. Um, you, you spoke in your speech a, a lot about uh obviously about neurodiversity, but again, it's something that we've come to see as uh, as negatives, but it's not necessarily so. It's like it is just a different wiring. Can you explain a little bit about how that different wiring may work for people who are, uh, like, I guess, autistic or people with ADHD, how, how that looks in terms of the day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess we have a number of conditions under the neurodiversity umbrella. We have autism, ADHD, dyslexia, even Tourette's syndrome fits under that neurodiversity spectrum. And so 
there are a whole heap of features, which I talk about in my talk. I only touched on a few, but there's literally hundreds of different features of neurodiversity. Um, and these were often seen sometimes as a negative thing, but we're now realising that a lot of these features can actually produce um, a lot of positivity and a lot of you know really cool things that, that neurodiverse brains can do. So one example of a common one is sensory needs. So some people are really sensory avoidant. They don't like bright lights. That's me. I don't really like too many people talking at once. I can't concentrate. I get overstimulated. Um, I've always been like super particular about like clothes and food, stuff like that. Other people are sensory seeking. So my son's definitely sensory seeking. He's always moving, always bouncing, always wanting to push against you and get that input. So there's lots of different features and each of them exist on a spectrum. So there's not just these like boxes that people fit into in that everyone who's autistic doesn't experience empathy. Everyone who's autistic doesn't make eye contact. All of these old stereotypes that we had, we're now realising that these things really exist on a spectrum and that those things actually happen for a reason. So the eye contact thing, when I first became a speech pathologist, number one goal in every kid who was autistic's plan was get them to make eye contact. We were just obsessed with the fact that they needed to make eye contact because back then, really, the goal of working with autistic kids was to make them look, quote unquote, normal. We try to get rid of the autism and make them look normal. But now with neurodiversity, we completely shifted that on its head and said, you know, neurodiversity isn't actually something wrong with them. It's something different about them. We've got to figure out how they function. So we know that a lot of people don't make eye contact because it's too much information going into their brain at once. So they can't actually hear what you're saying to them if all their energy is going into making eye contact yeah. on your face. Yeah. And so it's not a, it's not rude, it's not disrespectful, it's I'm trying to focus really hard on what you're saying to me so I need to look at the floor while you do that so that all my energy is going into that auditory pathway rather than wasting energy at looking on your, on your face. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking the number of times that I'm sitting down cutting up audio and I'll close my eyes so I can focus on listening mm-hmm. to it rather than – and it makes – perfect sense in that in that context. Yeah, yeah, it's just a way of focusing your attention. And yeah. so many other things about the neurodiverse brain, like one thing we know about neurodiverse people is they're really good at pattern recognition. So they'll often notice... Um, you know, no one notices when I get my hair cut like my son. He can notice the tiniest change in my appearance or anything like that. They've got great patterning re- pattern recognition, which is a really good skill in some professions, you know, being yeah. able to notice the slightest change to routine or the slightest change in, you know, how something is operating. That's actually a real strength. So things that we used to always categorise in the kind of bad column, we're saying, oh, actually, this is something that the neurotypical brain, so people who aren't neurodiverse, it doesn't actually do. We're actually pretty bad at noticing stuff like that. Our brain ignores all that superfluous information, whereas the neurodiverse brain will pick up on it and be really good at noticing stuff like that. It seems like, uh, especially in the last kind of five, 10, 15 years or so that critics would say that, oh, you know, every kid's getting diagnosed with ADHD now. And it, it's not so much about that, is it? It's that we're getting better at um, classifying uh, different levels on that spectrum where kids might sit. So it's not necessarily a binary of they are or they aren't ADHD anymore. It's like, well, they showed these traits or, or those traits, and it's not the same for everybody. Um, do you find that in your work, you have to kind of combat a lot of that scepticism and misinformation or the, the people sort of have a 
preconceived idea of what neurodiversity is supposed to look like that you have to kind of break down for them? Absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the biggest motivators for doing the TED Talk was trying to bust those myths. So that number one myth that everyone thinks, oh, autism is everywhere now, or ADHD is mm. everywhere now. And I think one of the best ways... Um, to learn things in life is to also make that mistake. So when I was early in my career, I used to think, oh, why does every kid have ADHD written on their file as well? You know, And I didn't have a really deep understanding of what that meant. And then when I did a lot more research into it and I was um, you know, teaching about it at university because I lecture at um, Charles Sturt, I realised, oh, okay, I have a lot greater understanding of this condition now. And yeah, these kids do have these traits, but I totally misunderstood it to be hyperactive little boy syndrome. Mm. not, you know, a diverse wiring of the brain. And so I think if even among professionals there's those misconceptions, then of course they're going to exist in the general public. And I think it's true what people are saying that autism and ADHD are everywhere, but they're not everywhere now. They've always always been everywhere. (laughs) You know, and I often say to people, like, maybe this is just um, something that I can relate to, but think about, I don't know, a grandfather or someone in your life that had to have dinner at 6pm on the dot every single night and who wore the exact same clothes every single day or just a variation of it or who never wanted you to deviate from routine or couldn't stand the children jumping around and making noise and everyone had to be really, like, routined. You know, he was probably autistic. We just didn't diagnose autism in the 40s. And so, or well, it was very rarely diagnosed. And so I think we've all been around autism and ADHD a lot. We just... You had different words for it. We'd say that person's different, that person's strange, that person's slow, whatever those derogatory terms were that we used to use. And now we're going, no, actually, we want to tap in and figure out how this person's brain works because then we can actually modify their environment to work in a way that's going to help their brain to thrive and, and make a really good contribution. You've touched a couple of times on social norms. How much does, like, I guess, societal expectation play into how we as a society uh, do do deal with people who are neurodiverse mm. and how much does like the social norm of you must do this at this time or you must do that at that time impact on people who are living with a neurodiverse brain? Oh, and I think that is honestly the biggest um, barrier to neurodiverse people because if our brains are allowed to do their thing, they're brilliant. But when they're forced to be constantly confined within neurotypical structures, they spend all their energy trying to fit in with those neurotypical structures and not actually be able to do their thing. So neurodiverse brains are very creative. A lot of inventors, a lot of artists, just about anyone that has invented something or is creative, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're neurodiverse in some way. Because when their brain is allowed to flow and do their thing, it can really do something amazing. But working within a nine-to-five structure, which was arbitrarily created a couple of hundred years ago, does not work for our brains. We find it really hard to be on time. We find it really hard to do complex multi-step processes. We like to just get in our flow and do the thing that is of our interest to us and do it well. And so that's why I think like creatives who are allowed to just, you know, write a play or write a book and don't have to go to work nine to five, they can do a really good job of that because those structures are taken away. But because we, you know, a big, big one for little kids is having to sit still in class. Impossible. Like my son cannot physically sit still, but he's exceptionally bright. And so often his teacher sort of remarks to me, she's so lovely, 
I'll ask him what I just said because he was being like upside down and wiggling and then he'll be able to say word for word what I just said back to me. Or he ignores that frustration. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he was actually listening but his body needed to be doing something while he was listening. And actually Jonathan, who's one of the other TED speakers, talked about the fact that he likes to always be sewing and that helps him to be able to concentrate more on listening to medical advice or whatever it is that he's doing because he's a doctor. But his hands always need to be busy. And so creating space for people to go, this is how my brain's going to work better. I'm going to work better if I can sit on this rocking chair. My son's got a rocking chair in school so that my body can constantly be moving while you're talking to me and that way I can listen. Or I don't have to look at your face and make eye contact while you're talking to me so I can actually take in that information. So as a parent, I think one of the hardest things is trying to shake off these social norms so that your kid can thrive in the best way possible because you have to say, uh, like one thing with my daughter, she just hates wearing shoes or any clothes really, but she hates (laughs) shoes especially. And sometimes we'll just go somewhere with no shoes on and I just have to swallow the judgment (laughs) because she's happy and content and we can go to this place with no shoes on or I can force her to wear shoes and she can cry the whole time. So that's your choice. It's either do we modify our expectations to allow someone to thrive or do we force them into a social box and make them miserable so that we don't feel embarrassed as a parent? Yeah. I just want to give a shout out to uh, those who are listening to this podcast because they need something for their ears to do while their hands are doing the dishes or folding the washing, like I do. 100%, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, another term, and Jamie's used this a little bit uh, around me and it fascinated me, and it was just it was a, a phrase that you used during the speech without giving too much away, uh, time blindness. Mm. This, uh, this concept fascinates me. Can you talk to us about what time blindness is? Absolutely. Fascinates and frustrates mm-hmm. me yeah. um, because I find it so hard to know how long something will take. My brain just cannot calculate how long a task will take, even if I've done it so many times before. So sometimes, like I remember when I was younger, I'd be laying on the couch and I had to be somewhere at four and it'd be 4.45 and I'm like, good. All I've got to do is have a shower, do my makeup, get dressed and drive there. I'll be fine. You know, yeah. Because there's just yep. no way to conceptualise that 15 minutes is not enough. Yeah. And so I've learned as a like an adult, to have more strategies of how long do you think it's going to take and add a half an hour. Mm. That's my sort of strategy that I go to. I'm like, okay, so I have to leave the house by 8, so I'm going to leave at 7.30 because I know that I'm really bad at estimating how long Mm -hmm. things are going to take. (laughs) And even then I'll just be scraping in on time or be five minutes late even when I've added that extra half an hour. It's, It's a strange thing. It's just an inability to really understand the passage of time and how long things are going to take to really conceptualize what what is involved, you know, there's a lot of steps in getting ready to go somewhere. So you often think, oh, all I've got to do is get dressed. But actually, you've got to brush your teeth and brush your hair and make breakfast. And there's heaps <laughs> of other stuff in there, too. And it just takes a lot, lot longer than our brains think it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to weigh in again as uh, <laughs> as one of the hashtag ADHD uh, kids out there. Um, what seems like a, a, a short list of tasks that you need to do gradually turns into a calculus of, of rapidly expanding lists of tasks. So each task can be broken into five or six mini tasks, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about putting your shoes on. It's about going to the cupboard, ignoring the mess that's in the cupboard, opening the sock drawer and ignoring the other drawers that need tidying up, finding a pair of socks, 
putting said pair of socks on, going and finding the shoes that you intend to put on, <laughs> not getting distracted by the other three things that you've forgotten to do on the way to get the shoes, etc., etc., etc. While you're there, yeah. And yeah. I, and the other thing that can happen, which is a really great example that you've given, is that then sometimes that list of tasks becomes so overwhelming that we get what's called ADHD paralysis, yep. and you're just like, I can't. That's just too. Can't I even just start. can't even. So things like having a shower to some people is a one-step thing. To us is an 18-step thing. Mm. We've got to turn the taps on. We've got to find the clothes. We've got to find the towel. We've got to find the soap. We've got to get a face washer. We've got to wash our hair. We've got to whatever. Oh, bugger me. The shower's still running (laughs) and it's been running for 10 minutes. (laughs) That's right. And so... Sometimes we just go, too hard basket. I literally can't do it. And so unless there's a a deadline that you actually, okay, well, I have to be out of the house by nine o'clock, so I will absolutely shower, you're not going to do it. If you've got, you know, if you're going out for dinner at seven o'clock at night and you could have had a shower at 10 in the morning, you'll have a shower at 6.30 at night because you've put it off all day because it was too hard. (laughs) And then you end up being late. So the cycle just repeats. And I remember hearing, it was a podcast actually of someone talking about lateness and saying, you know, that lateness is the height of rudeness because it basically is saying, your time is more important than mine. You're going to make me wait because you're late. And I really like hurt my feelings to hear that because I'd think I am running around like a blue ass fly to be on time and I know I'm still late but I really was not trying to disrespect your time by being late I just physically cannot be on time so I hope that that's one thing that people take from the talk is that we're not trying to be rude when we're late we're just really bad at time yep I've described it to my wife often as I, I don't have anything like an hour's time two hours time I have now soon or never uh, that's that's, a that's the only to... modes of time that I have now, soon or never. Yeah. And like, will you take the garbage out? Mm. That means no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm definitely going to forget about it. <laughs> yeah, definitely going to forget about it. Like, especially if I'm midway through doing something else that has my attention. Like, the, the hyper focus is the other bit of the ADHD. It's one of the positives of it. Definitely. Is yeah. that you, you have this ability to, for something that you're interested in, to be able to sink into it to a point where you lose all track of time and are able to do amazing things. We were joking yesterday that I was saying that in all my university career, I've never written a second draft. Oh, no. <laughs> like, Who's got time for second drafts? Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the first thing I wrote was the thing that got submitted. And yeah. <laughs> that was a really hard thing for me going into academia because you end up doing like 15 drafts of all of your oh. articles. And I'm like, I've already read it. It's got no <laughs> dopamine left in it yet. So, yeah. I mean, ADHD is fundamentally a lack of dopamine in the brain, which is like a chemical that excites us and makes mm. us interested. So if something doesn't have any dopamine associated with it, we don't want to do it. Yeah, there's no and reward. There's no reward. So if that's where the hyperfocus comes from is high dopamine. Like this is super interesting and engaging to me. So I love it and I love it and I love it. And when the dopamine's gone, I'm going to kind of abandon it because I'm yeah. over it now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Am I diagnosing you as we speak? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just conversations that we've had off air many times yeah. already. I'm like, oh, you're ticking a few boxes here, mate, just, uh, just so you know. Yeah. Um, you've, you've mentioned and we've touched on uh, the over the last couple of years, it's obviously become more prevalent, I guess, in society, the diagnosis of autism and ADHD. Has there been any research done as to where it's expected to sit as a percentage of neurodiverse versus neurotypical people in society? Because it seems to me that even with everything that's going on, it's still wildly underdiagnosed, if anything. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the fact that as I, as someone who works in this area, didn't know I was neurodiverse really until about three years ago. Uh, You know, I always knew my brain worked differently, but I didn't have that word for it. I suspect there's a lot of 
you know, we don't like to use this term, but high functioning people who get through their day who just don't know that they have it. Um, and so I think it is wildly underdiagnosed. We Also interesting, there's huge gender differences. So we know that there's a four to one diagnosis of boys to girls with autism. And I actually don't think that that's accurate. I think there's a lot of girls who are autistic, but they are better at masking or their their symptoms aren't as stereotypical as what perhaps doctors are looking for. It shows up in different ways. And so they're going undiagnosed. So I think one of the latest stats for Australia is like one in 70 for autism. Um, And I'm not sure about ADHD, but grossly underestimated, I think. And I think because those stats come from looking at as a disorder. So Obviously, when you have a disorder, it's just a small percentage of the population that has this disorder. But if we actually open our minds to thinking about it as a neurotype and say there's, you know, like, I don't know, five or six different neurotypes that we can have, then everybody has one of those neurotypes. So it could be a third of the population. It could be half the population. You know, we just don't actually know. We don't have any accurate data on it. Boys versus girls in autism, you said that the girls are far less. What about with ADHD? Yes, I would say the same with ADHD because, again, we play into those stereotypes of the hypo little boy, Um, whereas girls... Their ADHD presents in different ways. For So for me, as I mentioned in my TED Talk, the hyperactivity is in my brain. It's not in my body. So, yeah, I can wiggle a bit in my seat. But generally at school, no one would have said, oh, she never sits still. Yeah. Uh, wasn't an issue for me. But having an inability to control my thoughts and to, um, you know, talking a lot and wanting to learn a lot and wanting to ask questions all the time, because my brain was hyperactive, it was really wanting to engage with that knowledge. So it was it was presenting differently. And so it could be um, misinterpreted as either, oh, she just talks too much or maybe she's just really smart or whatever it is, but it's not thought of as ADHD. And so, yeah, girls often do slip under the radar. For, and I've spoken with Jamie a little bit about this off air, and I know he won't mind me talking about it on air, but people who uh, are listening and thinking, oh, Christ, that's me, or oh, Christ, that's, that's the kids, can you talk to us about some of the benefits of having that formal diagnosis in terms of being able to work out management techniques and tips mm-hmm. like that? And like, Because I guess if you're getting through your days, is there like the reasons to go further and just get it investigated? A hundred percent. I think a number of reasons, and I'm going through this with my own kids at the moment, so I can speak from personal experience as well. My kids are finding out at five what I found out at 35. And I want them to know their brains and understand their brains and recognise that their brains aren't broken, but to know how to work with their brains, to say, that strategy is not going to work for us. We're going to need a visual schedule to get ready in the morning. We're going to need to allow an extra hour to get ready in the morning. We are not going to be able to just go and, you know, wear those clothes. We're going to have to think about what we're going to wear or whatever it is that that child's need is to help them to understand their brain so that for the entirety of their life when they're navigating every situation, social situations, workplaces, schools, they are prepared with what's going to work for me and what's not going to work for me rather than finding it out the hard way or, as we see with a lot of kids who are neurodiverse, becoming the naughty kid Mm. um, and having negative connotations around their behaviour because it's not understood by themselves, it's not understood by their parents and it's not understood by their teachers. And so I guess the benefits of diagnosis for ADHD are twofold because, one, it's about knowing the brain and being able to get the support you need, but also 
medication can make a huge difference because we know that it's fundamentally a lack of dopamine that causes ADHD. We have a medication for that and I've started on that medication. It's made a huge difference to my ability to focus um, and my ability to complete tasks and, you know, find the motivation to overcome that ADHD paralysis. Mm. It certainly does not make you not ADHD anymore. (laughs) It doesn't, you know, you still have all your sensory issues. You still have issues with time management organisation, but it just helps so much with actually being able to focus and get some stuff done and not beat yourself up because that's another thing that really comes with neurodiversity is often a negative self-esteem because you think, why is this so hard for me? Why can't I do this? Why can everyone else do this? I remember feeling that as a new mum all the time. Why is everyone else here with their like pre-packed lunches and I've just like barely made it out the front door. I feel so inadequate because there are so many steps to being a new parent. And, you know, I was just trying to figure it all out for the first time. It seemed like everyone else had it together and not me because I didn't know that I was neurodiverse. So I want my kids to know from day dot who they are and have the supports in place to help them to fulfill whatever they want to fulfill without feeling that there's something broken about them. Sarah, thank you so much for catching up with us today and talking about this fascinating topic. You can hear Sarah's talk, you can see Sarah's talk on the TEDx Wagga YouTube page or check out TEDx Wagga Wagga on socials for all the links around that. Associate Professor Sarah Burden, thank you for your time. Awesome, thank you. Jamie and Lee on Listener, anytime you want them. And live from 6 to 9 weekdays on the Riverinas Triple M.